my agenda for today is to um, go quickly through the, some of the challenges uh, in uh, drug development, particularly under this financial climate, uh, what is happening nowadays. I will try then to uh, give a good justification as to why, particularly in the early phases of drug development, it might be absolutely critical to, um, to innovate uh, the way these trials are done uh, by adding uh, non-conventional endpoints uh, on top of uh, uh, or, or as an alternative to clinical endpoints. Mm -hmm. And I will use two mm -hmm. examples uh, that in a way represent uh, two extremes in, uh, uh, in diseases. I've chosen Alzheimer's disease and, multiple and um, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, motoneuron disease, uh, because I consider them at the two end of the spectrum in terms of uh, financial risks for companies uh, investing in these diseases for completely opposite reasons. Uh, and then I will try to conclude by reinforcing the concept that uh, markers are extremely important in drug development. However, uh, unless these markers are fully validated, there is a risk that the outcomes of the early phase clinical trials may not be necessarily meaningful. I'm sure you are all aware that, um, particularly in, in these days, there is a tremendous pressure uh, for the pharmaceutical companies, like probably every other company, uh, every other sector, uh, where uh, costs for developing new drugs are becoming prohibitive. And uh, uh, most of the compounds that are brought forward, that are developed, in fact, they fail uh, uh, at the very early stages of drug development. There is an attrition rate which is uh, in the range of 85-90%. That means that one uh, compound out of 10, if we are lucky, reaches the market. And so the bottom line is that unless companies continually bring enough new products to the, to the market, companies, pharmaceutical companies, are at risk of collapse. And I'm sure that you follow the media and you see how many times there are mergers and takeover between companies in an attempt of solving the problem. So when, uh, if one had to be cynical, could easily say that when the portfolio of a company is getting dry, the best way to bring it up is to do the merger and somehow to create a new portfolio. But that model is not sustainable. So just to give some figures, the reality is that in order to maintain a 10% annual growth, companies would need to launch at least four big compounds, uh, big blockbuster per year. So where each compound is worth uh, 500 million pounds. So the, um, the efforts, as you can see immediately, are uh, tremendous really to achieve this, to, to meet this goal. And as I was saying, the, the uh, the majority of compounds fail in the very early phases of, cl uh, of clinical development, very early clinical phases. So the overall goal, really, is that, uh, as you can see here, until compounds are at the very early preclinical phases, costs are relatively low. As soon as we enter into the clinical phase, uh, costs are... Uh, um, becoming, becoming exponentially high, and uh, the overall goal really is to reduce, uh, ideally, the overall cost, uh, but also to bring uh, compounds uh, quicker 
to the market. Is this doable? So historically, I mean, this is the typical life cycle management for any compound. For every company, there is a phase when the company is investing in developing a drug. There is a phase, then there is a return. And then as soon the company is losing the patent for that particular compound, obviously the profits uh, um, uh, reduce as well. So I'll go back to the very beginning. I mean, there is little profit after the uh, patent, patent expiration. So historic, and actually nowadays, in fact, things are even worse, because if historically took an X number of years, 10, 12 years to bring new compounds to the market, nowadays, in fact, it takes even longer. And as a result, the profit is even less. So historically, um, one of the goals, or one of the tricks to um, prolong the, the curve of the profit for, the com for companies was uh, just to extend the life cycle. How? By simply changing the formulation. Imagine one compound that is available in the market uh, for uh, once a day administration could be changed, I mean the formulation could be changed into twice a day or uh, from an oral into an IV formulation. I mean, by changing little things on the molecule, effectively, uh, on the formulation, effectively there is a chance for prolonging the, pa the patent of that molecule, that particular compound, which means that that compound for a while is not uh, a generic. So it's not becoming generic. Really, this model is not sustainable because... Uh, there are less and less compounds that can be extended for, in terms of patent, and even if this was possible, the reality is that the extension only applies for a couple of years or so, so it's not really a sustainable model. The overall goal is to reduce, sorry, the overall goal is to reduce the time to the launch of new molecules, because this inevitably will reduce the cost and will increase the the overall time for, uh, of profits for, for companies. Now, this is the ideal scenario. This is what everybody says. This is what everybody aims. Uh, the reality is that uh, uh, it is becoming more and more difficult to conduct clinical trials uh, in Europe and, more, and in particular in the UK. Uh, for those who are involved in uh, clinical research, uh, I don't have to say that the overheads for running clinical studies or uh, research studies in the, in the uh, UK uh, university environment is becoming prohibitive with 100, 150% overheads. So companies effectively are moving out. So many companies have left the UK, so many companies have invested in cheaper countries, Asia-Pacific. So... And this is uh, what is happening. I mean, in the last 10 years, uh, there was approximately 10% reduction of the, uh, of the re research efforts in Europe and in the UK in particular, with uh, uh, most of the research efforts now moved to Latin America, Asia Pacific. And so, the bottom line is that uh, it is not doable anymore to conduct studies in a conventional way as they were done for the last 20, 30, or even more years. 
Here what I try to represent are the typical conventional clinical trials that are done either in healthy volunteers or patients during the very early, well, at every stage of drug development. And essentially, I mean, these trials are done by uh, um, uh, investigating in a parallel arm fashion or in a crossover design, crossover designs, the effects of new drugs relative to either placebo or active comparators, established compounds. So this could be done by just put, by creating different groups, where one group is receiving placebo, another group is receiving uh, one particular dose of the drug, uh, or different doses can be tested in the same study, or in the typical crossover design, one group is receiving placebo, another one the active drug, and then after a period of washout, when the, dr the drugs and placebo are removed, the two groups switch into the other treatment. So this type of approach carries a lot of risk, unless we have a clear understanding that the, molecule, the new molecule that we are testing is somehow pharmacologically active. It's like fishing in the dark if we just test the compound in a conventional way. So if this was doable in the past, nowadays with all the technologies, we have so many compounds that are developed at the preclinical level, all these compounds cannot be tested systematically with conventional trials in healthy volunteers first and patients thereafter. They could, but the problem is that we carry a lot of risk particularly for diseases that are chronic diseases like Alzheimer's, that I'm going to mention in a second, diseases where the conventional clinical trials would require uh, several months, if not years, to test an hypothesis. So we do need markers. Just to make a bit of clarification, what do we need by markers? Because this is a, a field where markers mean different things to different people. Uh, to try and make it simple, I would say that for the purpose of drug development, essentially we need two types of markers. Either surrogate markers, that here I wrote, can be used as substitute of the primary endpoint. I can give you an example, a very simple example. Everybody knows that um, high cholesterol is a, or high blood pressure is a risk factor for uh, cardiovascular risk. We don't test how many people die by heart attack in a conventional clinical trial by measuring the effect of drug versus placebo in an otherwise healthy population and wait for so many years to see how many people have an heart attack on active and how many people have an heart attack on placebo, we use the surrogate marker, i.e. blood pressure, cholesterol, or glycemia, or um, biomarkers that, can, that are truly reflective of the pathology, and we make prediction that that drug will be effective in our condition. So that is the true surrogate marker that can be used as a substitute of the clinical endpoint. But particularly for neurological diseases, these markers don't exist or are not that validated, like blood pressure, like cholesterol. So what we need, particularly in the early stages, are the so-called pharmacodynamic markers, but essentially they can be markers that not necessarily are related to that particular disease, but just markers that can be used to pick up a pharmacological effect, a generic pharmacological effect, no matter what, but an effect that essentially will say that our drug at that particular dose was pharmacologically active. Therefore, 
If we then test the molecule, that particular dose in the patient population and does not work, at least we would understand that we are failing because that target is not relevant to that disease. But there is nothing wrong with the molecule because we have proven through the pharmac pharmacodynamic marker that is pharmacologically active at that particular dose level. And here come, uh, my example comes. Alzheimer. Uh, it is more than 100 years since the first case was described. We have learned a lot in terms of science about Alzheimer's disease. We do know that it is based... That it, oh, sorry. it is based on the accumulation of uh, uh, the typical pathological features of Alzheimer's are uh, uh, accumulation of amyloid into the brain, a neurofibrillar entangle in the in, into the brain, but essentially a disease which is based on a progressive neurodegeneration, which results in brain atrophy. And I picked this disease because it, affect, it affects millions of individuals. It is expected by 2050, almost 15 million individuals will be affected by Alzheimer's just in the U.S. And unfortunately, despite lots of progress in terms of science have been done, only symptomatic agents are available nowadays. So agents that, in other words, improve cognition for a little while, four to six months, and then these effects disappear. And here what I'm showing is the conventional, I mean the historical clinical trial done with cholinesterase inhibitors that are effectively, together with some, more, uh, some other agents, the only available agents on the market for Alzheimer's that don't cure the disease, they just improve cognition for a little while. And essentially in this trial, done in approximately six months, it was easy or relatively easy to demonstrate that individuals, patients on placebo, deteriorated much, more, uh, much faster than individuals on active drugs. So the delta six months was demonstrated, therefore the drug was approved. Despite this drug has got, um, uh, it hasn't got a very good safety profile, it was approved. And if I can just say if someone had to be cynical, uh, there are lots of people who believe that this drug was approved in the market because in those days, uh, as you know, uh, President Reagan was affected by Alzheimer's disease, and Americans couldn't really accept that uh, an American president had no therapy at all. So this uh, drug was approved into the market, but in fact, I mean, uh, the actual profile is not particularly good. But nevertheless, uh, improves a little bit uh, um, cognition for a while, and as I said, these effects disappear quite rapidly. Unfortunately, if we test nowadays the same identical class of compounds, this is a different compound but belonging to the same class, effectively, as you can see, after six months, uh, uh, does not work. Why? Because the compound is not working any longer? No, because if you just compare for a second this placebo response in the historical trial, which deteriorates very rapidly, nowadays, placebo, after six months, is still maintaining, a placebo is producing an effect, 
which is maintained over six months. So essentially there is a placebo effect which is not disappearing as it used to do 20 or 30 years ago. Why am I lighting this? And I mean, there is no time to go into details as to why things have changed. But the reason I'm highlighting this concept is because essentially if we were testing today without knowing that the same identical compound does a little bit in Alzheimer, we would throw away a, a compound which has got some benefit. So uh, uh, the purpose here is really to highlight a challenge where uh, we cannot just do now the clinical trial exactly the same way it was done 20 years ago. And that is just an initial uh, challenge that I wanted to highlight in terms of uh, difficulties in, um, in developing drugs. Yes, there are millions of patients who, who, can, uh, who can be recruited, in theory, for clinical trials in, Alza in, uh, in this disease area. Uh, unfortunately, we always need to take into consideration the dichotomy between what uh, ethical committees legitimately require, i.e. it is unethical to withdraw a therapy from a patient for the purpose of a clinical trial. So uh, we cannot just stop the treatment and allow that patient to deteriorate because we want to test the effect of a new drug. But legitim equally legitimately, regulators like FDA or EMEA in the UK in Europe, they require that we do demonstrate an effect over placebo. So even if we have millions of patients, these days, most of the patients, as soon as they receive a diagnosis of Alzheimer, they, immediately, they are immediately treated with the available drugs, no matter if they are ideal. As a result, we have less patients available for clinical trials. And we need to put in place alternative designs that... Um, uh, again, for in, in the matter of time, I cannot go into the details. Things become even worse if rather than testing symptomatic agents, we want to demonstrate disease modification. So, amyloid, neofibillary tangles accumulate in the brain over a period of 15 or more years. So, until these patients reach a critical clinical um, threshold, these patients are absolutely normal. We don't know they are Alzheimer. So, but they are already Alzheimer because of their accumulation to the brain of amyloid. So at this stage, there is a rapid deterioration of their cognitive function, and they might die rapidly in three to four years. So to demonstrate, and this was done, symptomatic actions, we can do over a period of six months. And I have shown already that even for that, things are more difficult than they used to be 20 years ago. But as you can imagine, if we wanted to demonstrate that the disease is halted, is stopped, that we are curing the disease, it's not enough, really, to conduct the trial for six months. We need to take the trial for several years, at least two or three years, to confirm that relative to placebo, these individuals remain stable over time. And as you can imagine, things are even worse if we aim at a preventative therapy. So if we aim, like everybody after the age of 50 nowadays is taking statins, certainly clinical pharmacologists do, uh, to prevent the cardiovascular risk when they are healthy. So ideally, we would like to get a preventative therapy for Alzheimer's as well. Can, he, can we undertake a clinical trial for 15 or more years to see 
what is happening, we would do exactly what I said at the beginning, relative to blood pressure. It's like if we were doing a clinical trial and look for 40 years and see how many people die by cardiovascular attack. So it is not doable. So we need markers. And I give you here a very rapid example of what we mean by markers. We mean, for example, imaging, which allow us to measure the level of a brain atrophy in the brain. Is that sufficient? No. Is not giving the final answer, particularly because the level of variability between, indi between individuals is very high. But at least is one tool which allows us to test an hypothesis and somehow build up confidence, uh, build up the level of confidence as to whether a molecule may or may not be uh, effective. So if you remember the initial slide where I was showing so many compounds are developed, uh, the idea is really to reduce, uh, to concentrate on those compounds that uh, stand realistic chances of success rather than testing everything systematically. Or again, we could use uh, tracers that can uh, bind to the um, beta amyloid in the brain, so to the, uh, to the typical feature of the disease. This particular uh, tracer will not be useful for testing an hypothesis, the pharmacological hypothesis, because it's not sensitive to drug. However, will allow us to introduce in a clinical trial only patients who do have the disease. Because in, in introducing patients who have cognitive impairment, we could introduce also individuals who are not Alzheimer. So the level of bias, the level of um, error could become higher. So the goal here is to choose a marker in this case, which is not telling us anything in terms of pharmacological effects, but helps us in testing, in selecting the right individuals for the very initial trials, just to prove the concept, just to prove the hypothesis. And to move towards the end, the other example, the other extreme is amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, motoneuron disease, another devastating disease, uh, disease which sometimes starts with muscle problems, uh, aspecific, generic, but is based again, like Alzheimer, uh, in progressive neurodegeneration, uh, with patients dying within three to five years from, from the time of the diagnosis. So if this is another neurodegenerative disease, what's the difference with Alzheimer? Why am I picking this up? The reason I'm picking this up is because, as you can see here, the incidence is completely different. We are not talking millions of patients. We are talking one, two individuals every 100,000. So it's effective. It's a rare disease. But the cost of developing a drug that, uh, are exactly the same. It doesn't make any difference whether we are developing a drug for Alzheimer's or we are developing a drug for, uh, for motoneuron disease. As a result, as you can imagine, companies have been historically reluctant to invest in, your, in, in rare diseases because there is a little return for the same amount of efforts. And unfortunately, for this type of trials, for this, type of, for, for this kind of diseases, rare diseases, not only we don't have markers, we don't have anything. So, if we wanted to conduct trials in this disease, not only we need to take into consideration issues applicable to other diseases, and this particular case, even to run a clinical trial in 10 individuals, one center might not be enough because there are not uh, sufficient patients in that center. 
So we may need to undertake trials in multicenter trials. Um, but the, the most disturbing thing, things nowadays, is that effectively the only type of trials that we can have been conducted and still are conducting these diseases are essentially based on the survival rate. So we just measure how many people die on active and how many people die on placebo. And because here there was a little difference, the drug was approved. So here what I'm showing you are a list of clinical trials performed. I'm not going into the details of every single trial. But what I wanted to show you is just this particular trial on Riluzol, which is the only available drug for motor neuron disease. But look at this statement. This is the only available drug available for motor neuron disease which prolongs life expectation by three months if it's taken for 18 months. So essentially it doesn't work. So lots of markers have been done, been tested in this disease by showing on imaging like diffusion tensor imaging different density in the spinal tract or different in magnetic resonance imaging hypotensity in the motor cortex. The main problem with these markers is that because not enough studies have been done, all these markers are not particularly sensitive, are not, uh, we don't know whether they are diagnostic or surrogate. We don't know, in other words, whether they are, they allow to make a diagnosis or we can test a pharmacological hypothesis. No longitudinal studies have been done. No effect of drugs have been tested. There is an overlap with healthy individuals. Even healthy subjects may have this type of response. Lots of other markers have been tested as well, but all these markers have the same, and in the periphery, in the blood, several markers have been proposed to be useful for motor neuron disease. But for every marker, we always have the issue, no specificity, no longitudinal data being done, no studies completed on the, on, the on, the, on the effect of drugs. And this is what we need. We need to test drugs on these markers in order to predict what might happen, happen in the patient population. So the bottom line is that, yes, uh, markers can be useful, but might not predict the true clinical effect of intervention, might not be valid, might not be reliable or reproducible. False positive and negatives may occur. Um, and the, the most worrying issue is that uh, these markers, in most cases, are developed in animals. And the translation from the animals into human pathology might not necessarily be uh, a true reflection of what is happening in, in patients. So, ideally, if we do have, then, our ideal surrogate marker, our blood pressure, our cholesterol, which can, without doubt, tell us that something is working on the marker, therefore will work on the disease, we don't need anything else. But if we don't have this ideal marker, what we need to do is to take in parallel preclinical and clinical experimental research, experimental medicine, to test the hypothesis rather than jumping from animals to patients. Uh, my friend and colleague Charles probably remember when we were both in, uh, in, uh, in, in GSK, how many times we ended up in uh, meetings where we needed to discuss whether compounds had to be progressed uh, um, to, to later development. 
And how many times we heard the comments like, this compound worked in the preclinical species, therefore there are no reasons to preclude further development. And we were asking, yes, there are no reasons to preclude, but what is the reason to progress? Uh, and there were a couple of years ago, uh, there was a, a, an interesting paper published in the, uh, I think it was in the British Medical Journal, uh, titled something like, uh, Biomedical Science, See What You Want to See. But essentially the bottom line was, uh, if we do see an effect in animals, uh, we are tempted to say, let's move to patients, because that is a great animal model of the disease. But if we don't see an effect in animals, the temptation is to say, let's move to patients anyway, because that is just an animal model of the disease. So really, the goal is to conduct things in parallel if we want to achieve something. And I'll skip a few slides. And once we have then the confidence that our molecule is pharmacologically active at a certain dose, then this type of trials is becoming a little bit more justified. Because at the very least, we have reduced some risk associated with, with that particular target or compounding development. And for diseases like motoneuron diseases, it is not enough to blame companies that have not developed, have not invested sufficiently on rare diseases because they are not charities. They look for a return. As a result, we cannot expect that companies in isolation, they put all the efforts in rare diseases. In an idealistic vision, all the sectors involved in, in health from academia, industry, government, and so on and so, and so forth, needs really to work together in an attempt to, to uh, break the boundaries, in an attempt really to work in a non-competitive way in the interest of patients. And I want to just highlight that uh, uh, innovation is starting in Europe and particularly in the UK, and this is the only way that we can beat, uh, we can beat uh, um, our competitors in Asia-Pacific, in, 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 in Latin America, and Eastern Europe. It's just by adding quality, not just quantity or just trying to beat them in terms of matching the cost. We probably won't be able to do that, but what we can offer on top of that is a better quality. And so, in that respect, MRC, WellContrast, uh, the NHS, they are investing a lot in experimental medicine, in translational medicine, in efforts that can bring, uh, um, can reduce the attrition rate uh, in drug development, can generate quicker, um, in a quicker way, more drugs entering into the market. And among the other efforts, I just wanted to highlight uh, uh, something that is just happening. I mean, a lot of clinical research facilities already set up. Uh, a joint venture just being created at Imperial College between uh, King's College, University College, um, uh, UCL, uh, and the MRC as well, uh, essentially to transform what was uh, the imaging center of GSK, that again, in isolation, they cannot work, they cannot sustain all the costs. Essentially, this imaging center has been picked up by academia together with the MRC, and the goal really is to focus primarily on experimental medicine, translational medicine. 
There are lots of European activities as well, programs available for this type of research, so we should really capitalize. Uh, my final comment is then markers hold the great potential uh, in shaping the future of drug development. However, we need to make sure that our markers are validated, are sufficiently valid for making conclusions. We cannot just do it because it's fashionable, then we run these type of studies, and at the end of the study we say we have a negative result or a positive result, and we don't have a clue what it means. So they need to be sufficiently validated, and also the other important step forward is to make sure that we don't do things in the same way that we did in the last 10, 20 years or more, just because we did it. Novel target may require novel study designs, novel markers, uh, and more importantly, what we need to think in terms of, for, for the future, is uh, rather than working in isolation, where the University of Oxford is in competition with Cambridge or with UCL, just because um, the different gurus don't want really to collaborate, is not happening anymore. Thank God, uh, academia is now working together. Uh, the uh, consortia between academia and industry are uh, coming up, and that might be the future of, uh, of drug development for the next 10 years. Thanks for your attention. By pioneer, what I mean is completely novel target for drug discovery. We don't want me-tos, we're not talking about follow-ups. Society desperately needs completely novel methods, novel modes of action. I've suggested that this, what I'm going to describe, is an alternative way forward. I might even, to be provocative, say that this is the only way forward. We all know this. This is the amount of money that's being spent on health expenditure in the US as a proportion of GDP. By 2020, the US is going to get close to 20% of GDP on health, and this is the OECD, and that's going to be about 15%. Currently, globally, we are spending $160 billion a year on biomedical research. And if we work out how many truly novel medicines we get per year, the number is three, four, or five. We cannot afford to spend more money. Pharma cannot afford it. And governments and charities cannot afford it. However, society, as Vincenzo said, desperately needs more pioneer drugs in things like Alzheimer's, depression, pain, diabetes, obesity. In some of these indications, globally, we've almost got epidemics. Vincenzo talked about Alzheimer's. With an aging society, there are many societies that are not going to be able to look after their Alzheimer's patients. <coughs> Industry is downsizing. There is absolutely no doubt that industry is downsizing in the UK. In the past six years within the UK, we've seen Merck pull out of Harlow, GSK pull out of Harlow, 
Pfizer now pulling out of Sandwich, AstraZeneca pulling out of Lovebra, and in just a few weeks ago, Novartis announced halving their effort in Surrey. Thousands of jobs in biomedical research are being lost in the UK. The fact is, industry is getting a poorer return on investment in recent years. So what's the response? It's inevitable. If you were CEO of TSK or Pfizer, you would do exactly the same. You would drive down costs and reduce risk. So, what do they do? Buy late-stage assets. Well, unfortunately, there's not many of them out there. And the ones that are out there, we're paying an absolute fortune for. Focus on low-risk therapeutic areas. These are things like anti-infectives, oncology, and anti-inflammatories. But it's not things like neuroscience and metabolic diseases and cardiovascular diseases. Invest in lower-cost countries. They may be lower-cost today, but I guarantee they will not be lower-cost in a few years' time. And the other thing we hear a lot about is externalized early drug discovery. That means... Academia do it, or biotech do it? Okay, well that's fine, but where are the facilities to allow academia and biotech to do that? Why is drug discovery so damn hard? Vincenzo's touched on it. Frankly, our understanding of many clinical diseases is limited, and in fact I would say in many conditions it's poor. All patients are different. You won't get two Alzheimer's patients the same. We don't even know how some existing drugs work. We all take paracetamol as an analgesic. We don't even know the mode of action of paracetamol. For some drugs, different doses are effective in different patients. Usually the efficacy is only for a short period of time because the disease is changing. The preclinical assays, so the animal models, frankly, in my opinion, they are not predictive of efficacy in the clinic. They also are not particularly good indicators of therapeutic index, so in other words, the side effects you see in patients. You cannot pick up nausea and migraine in a rat. And what often kills molecules is things like that in phase one. And frankly, we've got too many targets to choose from. In humans, there are more than 20,000 proteins. Each of those proteins is chemically modified. Each of those chemically modified proteins could be a target for drug discovery. And frankly, the biggest issue we have today is that our ability to say that this target is going to work in this disease or this disease subset is appalling. It is absolutely appalling. So what's the ideal solution? Well, whenever anything is difficult, what we need to do is we need to bring together the best people, irrespective of organization. It doesn't matter whether they're inside GSK, or in Oxford, or in Harvard, or wherever. We need to pool resources and share risk. 
because we can't carry on like this. We need to remove... Oops, sorry. We need to remove any barriers which slow down collaboration. And we need to reduce duplication. At the moment, most of the industry is working on the same narrow subset of targets. And I'll come back to that in a moment. So I'm going to step back and just share with you what we've been doing, because I think there are some lessons from this which we can apply. And it's based on this that we're building this new model. The SGC, the Structural Genomics Consortium, was established seven years ago in three universities, in Toronto, the Karolinska, and in Oxford. Altogether, we're about 200 scientists. We're funded as a public-private partnership. So we get funding from GSK, from Merck, from Novartis. We also get significant government and charitable funding. In our current phase of funding, we had $100 million of funding from these organizations. Our objective is to solve the 3D structure of human proteins. So I said there are 20,000 proteins in the human proteome, and they could be targets for drug discovery. So what our job is, is to solve the 3D structure of those proteins. So what's the shape? How do they fold? The targets that we work on are therapeutically relevant because they are selected by GSK and Merck and Novartis. What have we done in seven years? We have deposited more than a thousand human protein structures we can do them cheaper and quicker than any other group on the planet. This total now is about a quarter of all structures that have been done on the globe. That's the impact we've had in seven years. We have purified 2,000 human proteins. We publish in high-impact papers because we need to maintain credibility in Oxford and elsewhere. We distribute our reagents freely to anybody in academia, in biotech, and in pharma. So how do we work? We disseminate everything we do immediately. We solve, in Oxford, five structures every month, five novel human protein structures, and we deposit them as soon as we've solved them, even before we've published on them. Despite that, we can still publish. But the biggest distinction between us and most other groups is that we take out no intellectual property. Because of this, we can collaborate quickly with any scientist, lab, or institution. And importantly, we work closely with multiple private organizations on the same project. If we were taking out IP, there is no way we would get money from GSK and Merck and the Vargas. Just to illustrate what we've done, so one protein family is the kinases. This is when the SGC got going. This is the number of structures that have been solved. Red is in academia, green is in industry, and the blue is the SGC. It's one group in Oxford. 
In the past five years, we have solved nearly half of all kinase structures on the planet. This is another family we've worked on, phosphatases. In humans, there are 34 of these phosphatases. We've solved the structure of 23 of them. And at the beginning of 2009, we produced a single manuscript in cell, Alistair Barr et al., where we included 22 novel structures. We didn't produce 22 separate papers. We produced one paper with 22 structures in it. So that's structures. Now, once we've got the shape of the protein, we can design inhibitors to block that protein. That's what drugs are. Drugs are going to bind to these proteins to modulate their function. So using structure-based drug design, we can design starting points for drug discovery. So in January 2009, we kicked off this project to generate chemical probes or inhibitors for epigenetic proteins. doesn't matter why epigenetics, but we started this project. We got funding from the Wellcome Trust. They gave us four million pounds to recruit 17 people into Oxford. The NIH had this screening facility in Washington. They gave us access to 20 high-throughput screens at cost to them. So we would make the protein, give it to them, they would put their compound collection through it, they would screen it, do all the robotics, and give us the data. And this was the paradigm shift. GSK gave us eight chemists at cost to them. So bear in mind, this industry has survived because they have taken out patents on their molecules, new molecules that they have made. GSK gave us eight medicinal chemistry FTEs to generate new molecules, which they knew we were going to screen, and as soon as we identified a molecule that was potent and selective, we would put it into the public domain. <coughs> Subsequent to that, we got significant funding from various other funders and academic labs, but look at this. Last year, Pfizer joined and they gave us another 8 FTEs. Novartis joined and gave us another 8 FTEs. And in December, Lilly joined and gave us another 8 FTEs. For this one project now, to generate inhibitors, we have more than £30 million worth of resource to generate novel inhibitors of these human proteins, which we believe are great targets for drug discovery. So this was our first molecule that we generated. It's an inhibitor. The purpose of this slide is just to show that this is a nanomolar inhibitor. This is extremely potent. We got that inhibitor, and we gave it to our collaborator in Harvard, Jay Bradner. Because Jay Bradner is an expert in a type of cancer called nut midline carcinoma. And there was some data in the literature that this inhibitor, BRD4, would actually work in that type of cancer, not midline carcinoma. What Jay has is patient-derived cell lines. So these are cell lines from patients with not midline carcinoma. And what he has shown is that the compound, which we call JQ1 after the postdoc who made it, 
shows a reduction in proliferation of these cancer cells, and here's a reduction in proliferation of these cancer cells. The compound is anti-proliferative. Jay Bradner now wants to take this molecule into patients because he knows that within three months those patients are going to die. This is some data with the same compound showing that it reduces tumour volume and tumour weight. And just to say, what was the impact of this molecule? Within six months of generating that molecule, we gave it to Jay. Jay had it profiled in five different labs in Harvard, no IP whatsoever. We sent the uh, paper off for publication to Nature last March, and it was published last June. That's how quickly we can do it. It cost us nothing. We didn't pay any of the labs in Harvard. And now that molecule has been sent to more than 250 labs throughout the world for evaluation in multiple disease areas. We can do that. We can collaborate with academic labs on this scale. We don't pay these academic labs anything. There is no way that GSK or Pfizer or whoever could afford to do that. So this is what we're doing. We're producing proteins, we're producing structures, we're generating inhibitors, we're making them available to the global biomedical community because we believe that's the way to improve target discovery. That's the way to improve our ability to say that this target is going to work in this disease area. Now let's move on to drug discovery. This is what we're now trying to do based on these learnings. This is a schema of drug discovery. We start with a target. It could be one of these 20,000. We run a screen. We generate a clinical candidate. We make sure it's safe in animals. We make sure it's safe in human volunteers. And then we take it into patients. Phase two, this is where we first of all test if that molecule or that target is going to work in patients. These numbers here are the attrition levels at each stage. So here we lose a half, here we lose 10%, etc., etc. But look at this. For novel targets, which is what we want, the attrition rate at phase two is more than 90%. This is what's killing our industry. Bear in mind, to get from here to here is six or seven years' work. Would you invest in an endeavor like that where you knew that after six, seven years, you had a 90% chance of failure. That's what we're doing. But now the tragedy. All these pharma companies are working on the same targets. It's not surprising. They read the same literature. They go to the same conferences. They talk to the same opinion leaders. So they end up working on the same targets. So... So this is what you end up getting. This is Pfizer, this is GSK, this is Novartis, Merck, etc. All of them doing their proprietary work in parallel, in secret. Now can you imagine the amount of money wasted? Can you imagine the number of people's careers wasted? But ethically and morally, this is wrong. 
Because the way we're currently doing drug discovery, it means that we are dosing patients with molecules that other groups know are destined for failure. That cannot be right. This is an example. TRPV1 was an iron channel target I was working on in GSK in the mid-90s, or GW at the time. This is just showing the number of patents on that one target. Now I know that many clinical studies have been done with proprietary molecules in pain. There is still no published clinical efficacy data, and I do not believe that there is going to be a drug out of this target. But look at the number of patents in the past decade. Each of these different colors is a different company shown down here. Now for the same target, this is patents by therapeutic area. So this is pain in the pink. And all of these different colors are different indications. And you probably can't read this, but let me just scan through this. There's pain, there's bladder, there's Alzheimer's, there's anxiety, there's asthma, there's depression, there's headache, there's HIV, there's... There's practically every damn therapeutic area up there. And that's the problem. Our ability to say that this target is going to work in this patient group is appalling. So, what's the solution? I think we should establish a public-private partnership to take completely novel targets, pioneer targets, all the way through to phase two. Proof of concept. Because that's where validation happens. It happens in patients. It does not happen in animal models. We should publish all of this data as quickly as we can. If it's negative, if it's positive, we should disseminate that data as quickly as we can. Because that will reduce duplication, it will reduce wastage of money, and importantly, it will stop patients from being dosed unnecessarily. Our objective would be to generate novel, because that's what society wants, clinically validated, de-risk targets, which pharma can then convert into drugs. That's what pharma is good at. Pharma is brilliant at things that require scale and infrastructure. High throughput screening, medicinal chemistry, toxicology, big clinical studies, launch, etc. Only pharma can do it. Biotech cannot do it as well, and academia certainly cannot do it. So what we've been doing over the past few months, we've created this organization, or we're starting to create this organization, we've called it ARCH to POCM. Basically ARCH because this is meant to reflect academics, regulators, citizens, so patients, and H is for the health industry. And we're going to take novel targets to proof of clinical mechanism, so all the way through to phase two. We've involved, we've been talking to these six groups, many senior academics, regulators in the FDA and the EMEA, many patient groups, many pharma, senior executives, CROs, and also the public funders. This is where we've got to. The patient groups absolutely love this. 
They said we can help you facilitate, uh, we can help you with recruitment, we can help you reduce the cost of trials and give you access to all of our personal data. The regulators, the regulators have said they are sitting on a stack of historical data. They want to work with an organization like this to validate new clinical endpoints, which is what Vincenzo has just been talking about, and also to develop new study designs. The regulators want to work with us to come up with new study designs. And what we also believe is that if we do this, we will get what we call crowdsourcing of additional POCMs. So let me just illustrate that. There's the pipeline. At each stage along here, if we take new targets, bear in mind we're going to take them all the way through to phase two to proof of clinical mechanism. Along the way, we will generate reagents which we will make available to global biomedical communities. We will produce publications using those reagents. And we believe that these reagents and these publications will facilitate collaboration, more leverage funds, and more POCMs, and therefore better target discovery. So this organization may decide to take TRIP V1 into a study in neuropathic pain, but there may be somebody in Australia who thinks TRIP V1 is a brilliant target for COPD, and he or she will get their own funding to do that, but using this molecule. We've been thinking about what therapeutic areas to focus on. Now, therapeutic, of course, is a massive area, so this is a start. At the moment, we're thinking of inflammation, neuroscience, and in neuroscience, we're thinking in particular around schizophrenia and autism, oncology, but another area that we call opportunistic. We've been working with academic centers to identify which ones are going to put their hand up and say, we want to be part of this, because we care about generating knowledge to help patients and to help the economy. And so far, we've got Oxford on board, Toronto, and UCSF. And within Oxford, we've got Mark Feldman and Andy Carr helping us drive this. So, my final slide. Shifting the pre-competitive boundary. In 1999, everybody accepted that human gene sequence was pre-competitive. There's no point taking out IP on it. In 2003, when GSK helped to set up the SGC, at least GSK accepted that human protein structure was pre-competitive. And then in 2009, when we kicked off the probes project, again, GSK, they accepted that chemical probes are pre-competitive, and they will enable target discovery. And since then, we've had Pfizer, Lilly, and Novartis join. And I should say, we're still in discussions with AZ, J&J, Sanofi, and Abbott. I hope next year, we might be able to stand here and say that some organizations are accepting that novel, clinically validated targets should also be pre-contextual. Thank you very much.